You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we're welcoming back an old friend of the podcast, Dr. Carmen Imes, who's Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University's Talbot School of Theology. And we've talked to her before, and she's she's an Old Testament scholar. And in particular today, we were talking with her about the book of Exodus. She's written on the book of Exodus. She's written books called Bearing Yahweh's Name at Sinai, Why Sinai Still Matters. Um, And then she also does these things called Torah Tuesdays, where she dives into different aspects of the Old Testament. And um, Carmen is fantastic. She's a fantastic scholar. She's a fantastic communicator. And she opens up, for, for us, has opened up the book of Exodus. And particularly these passages where you're like, what's going on there? This doesn't make sense. And she kind of like like her close reading of the text and of the Hebrew scriptures kind of just opens up all of this stuff that just, you're just like, of course, that makes total sense. It's not confusing at all. So we had a wonderful mind-opening, heart-stirring conversation with Carmen. Really enjoyed Carmen's passion and perspective and the questions that she brings to the Bible and specifically to Exodus. And so being able to discuss with her some of those passages in the Bible where what does it mean, you know, that Pharaoh or God hardened Pharaoh's heart and what what does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain and why are these passages here? What's going on? Carmen really opened it up. So it was a great conversation. So friends, we hope you enjoy as much as we did a conversation with Dr. Carmen Imes. Carmen, welcome back to the Regent Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. We were just we were just laughing about how you've been on many podcasts, but somehow you don't get sick of it because no. you enjoy talking about the Bible, which is a great thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, anybody who wants to think about the Bible, wants to dig deeper, I can find things to say. Awesome. <laughs> and we're, that's us. That's me and Nick. Yeah, we're, that's uh, why we're, we're here. We, we got some Sweet. questions. Especially when it's about Exodus, I will not run out of any material. So we can be here all day if you want. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Um, so you're teaching a class here on the book of Exodus in the yes. summer, and we're so excited to have you actually here teaching yes. in person yes. in the building. In person. Um, but if so, if you had to summarize the book of Exodus and what's it about, what, how would you summarize? What would you say? Hmm. Yeah, I think the at the core of Exodus, there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of stuff going on, but it seems yeah. like at the core, it's about God setting his people free but not freedom for freedom's sake. They they go from serving Pharaoh to serving Yahweh. So mm. they have a change of master, maybe is a better way mm. of putting it even than freedom. And as he brings them out of Egypt, he's bringing them into a new kind of life. They're becoming a nation. They're becoming a nation that's centered around the worship of Yahweh. And so all the things we think of when we think of Exodus, like the giving of the law or the building of the tabernacle are all a feature of creating this new community centered around Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So the, the laws are meant to shape them as a community and tell them how to live now that they have this new identity. And the tabernacle is the means by which they're going to have Yahweh, Yahweh's presence in the in their midst. And mm-hmm. um the 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 laws are part of the the um protection or or creating the conditions by which it's going to work to have Yahweh in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, so there's a complete change from Egypt to Sinai, and it's just so fun to track it. It's such a beautifully crafted book, and the more I slow down and study a chapter at a time, the more blown away I am by the word plays in Hebrew, by the the literary design, the way things are told. It all just mm-hmm. comes together to make this beautiful tapestry. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh so, so sweet. That's really the framework I, I think is important to have because we're going to get into some uh, meaty, a little meaty texts here and, yeah. and discuss those, but having that overarching framework of what Exodus is about, I think is important. But maybe before mm-hmm. we dive into those specific passages, uh, could you just share maybe one or two um, sections or passages in Exodus that you found interesting, but also have to wrestle with and has mm-hmm. challenged you? 
I feel yeah, like it's sure. always good to ask academics that question, right? Because yeah. whenever you yeah. ask academics questions, they've usually got really good answers because it's like it's the stuff they've thought about. But then it's a good. It's always good to know like what parts like are you wrestling with or like don't make sense to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like it's always also yeah. good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So I I will say off the bat that I'm writing a commentary on Exodus for Baker Academic. I'm in chapters 12 and 13 right now, so I'm at the Passover. Uh, firstborn legislation. And I am wrestling in those texts because they are literarily rather disjointed. Mm. And there's clearly uh, an expectation that Moses is speaking to people who aren't there yet. Like he, yeah. like he's giving legislation for the future in the midst of a rushed exit from Egypt. And so some of it is instructions for right now. Mm. Some of it's instructions for down the road, how to remember this. Um, I have all kinds of questions about the firstborn that I've not solved yet. Um, right now, what I'm trying to dig into is, so is so because God, that God punishes Pharaoh by killing the Egyptian firstborn, but it's not clear whether these are just children or whether they're grownups. Yeah, right. Um, like, mm. is it firstborn children or is it of any age? Like, are people of all ages dying? Is mm. it only men or is it men and women? Um, and and I don't, I haven't been able to quite crack that code yet. So I even have kind of some flags in chapter 11 going, okay, I still need to solve gender and age when it comes to firstborn. And I don't know if it's solvable. But that's what I'm still wondering about. Hmm. And and then I'm working through chapter 12 and I have more flags there. But then I have to get to 13 because 13 is where Yahweh talks about the Israelite community needs to dedicate to Yahweh their firstborn in place of the firstborn that he spared in Egypt. And so those the questions are all interconnected mm-hmm. and I'm looking for clues. Yeah. And it's clear in chapter 13 that when they give their firstborn animals to Yahweh, it's male. It's the male firstborn animals, but it does not specify male with regard to the humans. And so I'm, the jury's still out on that for me. Yeah. Um, it uses the word son. So you could say, well, that's obviously a male, but the word son in Hebrew so often, like the sons of Israel so often refers to mm-hmm. the whole nation right. generically. So then I'm, I'm just not sure that that is proof that these are just male Israelites. So I'm still wrestling with that and haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious in part because I'm a firstborn and I'm wondering yeah. like, would I be dedicated to Yahweh or would need to be ransomed or do I not count? And, and the language yeah. is it, it alternates between the word firstborn Bakor and the phrase, the one who opens the womb. And so then uh-huh. I'm not sure how, why you would limit that to males Mm-hmm. If if a, if a daughter is born first, does she not open the womb as, right. she, as she's being born? So that's what I'm wrestling with. I'm sure there are good answers out there, but I haven't done all the digging I need to do yet. Yeah. I was so. going to say, how are you going to find that answer? So you're saying that you're looking for clues in other yeah. passages before, passages after. But yeah. if you can't find them, then what do you, how do you, what do you do? You, you may have to just leave it open-ended. Yeah. I may have to say, you know, tradition, traditionally, this is assumed to be males, in the case of the death of the firstborn in Egypt, uh, male firstborn who are still children, but but it depends. There's rabbinic, rabbinic traditions that include women. There are rabbinic traditions that uh, that say adults are included so that um, then we have to figure out, well, why doesn't Pharaoh die? Wouldn't he have been the firstborn? Right. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I have lots of questions. And I think yeah. one of the joys of writing a commentary, and I do mean joy because it <laughs> is so fun, um, <laughs> is that I get to be curious and ask a lot of questions and then chase down answers. Mm-hmm. So I have behind me a stack of library books on Egypt. And part one part of my process, after I've translated through the passage and considered the interpretive possibilities then i go digging in books about egypt to see if i can learn right. anything about like what what was the role of a firstborn in egypt right, what does yeah. this mean when the firstborn die what mm-hmm. what's being lost uh what are the implications socially mm-hmm. and then i go through a whole shelf of commentaries on exodus and see what have other people found what are they thinking about mm-hmm. uh so those are the kind of two ways that i do digging and then sometimes i make a Torah Tuesday video and put it on my YouTube channel and people comment with mm-hmm. their ideas. And I learned things exactly. <laughs> that I didn't oh, know. It's neat. been, it's been a really cool uh, 
growing learning community mm-hmm. uh, of people who are watching these videos because I, I release a video every Tuesday and I'm working my way through Exodus. I'm behind where I'm writing. And so right. today I recorded four episodes. Uh, I'm I'm in chapters eight and nine recording, but I'm in 12 and 13 writing. And so it gives me a chance to circle back to what I said a few months ago yeah. as I was mm-hmm. writing and notice maybe weak spots or things I'm still wondering about. And then sometimes I can crowdsource it. And then people, I have a lot of great people who are watching and have good ideas. And so yeah. That's it's so been great. Actually, part of my research process. That's so, so great. That's what I was yeah. thinking. I was thinking you're just saying I've got this stack of commentaries on my thing. So it's like, oh, why would you yeah. write another one? Yeah, you know, yeah, like, good why question. Would, why would we? Why would we? Why would we yeah. keep writing commentaries? Yes, if there's tons of them already written. Such a good question. So one reason is because of the commentaries on my shelf, only one of them is written by a woman. Right. Good Many job, of them are written by men, and so I. I I find that it makes a difference. I'm asking different sorts of questions. I'm exploring Mm -hmm. different sorts of things. So I'm hoping that my social location will help me to see things that maybe have been missed. Yeah. Um, I'm also very fascinated by literary design and wordplay, and I'm not seeing a ton on that in the other commentaries. So some commentaries are super lexical. They're, They're showing etymologies of words. Many of them are very concerned with source criticism Mm -hmm. and, you know, slicing and dicing the text into its constituent parts and then trying to explain why they got put together in this way. I have uh, almost no interest in source criticism. I'm interested in the final form of the text and and why why does it look the way it looks to us? Mm -hmm. And so some of the fattest commentaries with the most uh, most comments on Exodus are spending a lot of time tied up in source criticism and not really thinking about the final form of text. So I'm not saying there won't be a lot of overlap between my work and some of these other commentaries, but fewer of them I think are actually useful for pastors. Mm -hmm. If you're preaching a sermon on a passage in Exodus Mm. and you have to wade through a lot of source criticism and a lot of lexical work and a lot of uh, historical background and you're kind of wondering what's the point right my right. commentary is going to beeline towards the point a little faster <laughs> and uh, so I hope that will be useful for pastors and seminary students um, but I think the un- the most unique contribution will be in the area of literary design mm-hmm. yeah that's super helpful I wonder mm-hmm. if that question about the um, firstborn yeah. The reason you're asking that is because you're saying it's like, I'm wondering, would this be me? Is it, yeah. you, do you like that question? Like, are you just, you're just coming at that with a different question while they're just assuming. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's going to be I, a ma- at the male. And I often, well, I, and that actually, that question was raised for me by Wilda Gaffney uh, okay. in her book, Womanist Midrash. She, she argues that the firstborn would include men and women or male right. and female. Mm-hmm. And she makes a case and I'm just not entirely convinced she's right. So I, I like I see it. I I think well in this verse it works, and in this verse it works. Yeah, but right. here it seems to specify male. So mm. does the male is the male just the animal, or is it animal or mm. human? Mm-hmm. And so these are all the questions I'm carrying around in my head as I work on these texts. So good. Thanks. Thanks yeah. for letting us yeah. hear your wrestlings and and processings, and not fully fully developed thought. It's it's always yeah. a neat window into a, a scholar's scholar's life as well. Because oftentimes you just get the commentary and you're like, this is the fully processed thought, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. neat to neat to hear that. Yeah, actually writing the commentary forces me to develop a thought because I, you know, I'll I'll say, well, I think this is maybe what's going on. And then I'll read some more and I'll come back to that later and go, and I actually don't think that anymore. Mm, <laughs> so, right. so I need to reshape that. I, I'm mm. not as sure about it, or I now have this other idea or this new data that's been unearthed for me that is illuminating. I've just learned something about Egyptian culture mm. that sheds new light on this. And so I want to reconsider. So even the, you know, I taught a course on Exodus at Regent two years ago via Zoom. Mm-hmm. And this Exodus course is going to be a little different because mm. I wasn't this far along in my commentary. Mm-hmm. I've learned mm-hmm. a lot since then. So we'll be reading some of the same stuff, but some of the insights I have developed are different. For example, I no longer think there are 10 plagues. Mm. And that might seem like a really obvious thing about Exodus mm. that there's 10 plagues, but the Bible never calls them plagues and it never counts them for us. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to come at it fresh and just say, how many are there and what are they being 
called. And Mm -hmm. if you don't call them plagues, if you use the term the Bible uses, which is signs and wonders, Mm -hmm. then the, the incident at the beginning with the staff turning into a snake qualifies. It has, it has Uh all the signs of a sign. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a demonstration of Yahweh's power over Mm -hmm. and against Pharaoh. But when you, when you call it when you call them plagues, then it doesn't seem to qualify because it's mm-hmm. like just this private showing mm-hmm. um, and it's not actually causing harm across the whole nation. So I'm actually calling that the prologue and then the death of the army, Pharaoh's army in the Sea of Reeds as mm-hmm. the climax. And when you add those two, then you get 12 signs and wonders. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty fun in lots of ways. There's so much cool literary patterning that I've even discovered more of since I taught last at Regent. Mm. Um, but one one cool angle on it is Casuto, uh, who is an older commentator who loves Hebrew wordplay and notices patterns. So he, mm. I often find nuggets in him. He shows how the 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 traditional ten plagues could be paired together so that there's two, 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 um, two about the Nile, two about flying insects or two about insects, two about livestock, two about weather, and then two, the darkness and death go together at the end. So he's got these five pairs, but if you add my two on either end and to make it, to make it 12, you have like bookends in which the snake of Moses swallows the snake of Pharaoh mm. at the front end and the sea swallows the army of mm. Pharaoh at the end. Mm-hmm. And since the snake is the symbol of Pharaoh's royal authority in Egypt, it symbolizes his power being swallowed up by Yahweh. And then that's exactly what happens mm. at the sea on the other mm. side. So it makes this amazing, <sighs> like this can't be accidental. Totally. Mm-hmm. You've, you've convinced me. Yeah, I mean, it uses swallow on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> There's no more 10. And, it's 12. And, and, and one more thing, the snake. So when God tells Moses at Sinai, this is what you're going to do. You're going to throw down your staff and it will turn into a snake. He says Nahash, which is a snake like we have in the Garden of Eden, just a regular snake. But when he actually does it before Pharaoh, he throws down his staff and it becomes a tanin, which is the Hebrew word that means sea serpent. Hmm. So... So the serpent that's being swallowed, it's being swallowed by a sea serpent, and then it happens at the sea. Yeah. I just think that's so cool. Wow. Oh, I love your passion for it, too. It really shows and, and kind of unveils the beauty of mm-hmm. Scripture and the and the artist, artistic even writing within Scripture. So, And even to your point of um, kind of how you are re-articulating how you understand those passages Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot lately just about um, to meditate on scripture and what that means, you know, that idea of of almost chewing, right? And yes. just how even what you're doing there is in some sense like meditating, like it's like mm-hmm. you're swallowing it, but then you're also bringing it back up to mm-hmm. chew on it some more and be like, okay, what, how does this actually work? What does this actually mean? And kind of not just setting on one exact meaning, but kind of seeing the beauty and within mm-hmm. scripture, it's really, it's really neat and encouraging. So thanks for yeah, sharing your it's thoughts. Fun. I, I consider commentary writing to be my sandbox <laughs> where I get to it. play. <laughs> um, and I, and I, I'm told that's really unique that I love it. Um, Cause mm-hmm. even a lot of people who write commentaries don't say that they love the process, but to yeah. me, it's like this free space mm. where I get to a- ask all of the curious questions that I have about the text and explore things and learn things and then share those things with others. And if I get to the point where I just really don't know, like if I just really can't decide about the firstborn, whether they're male or female or uh, whether they're old or young, then I can just say, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. in good, good company because nobody else knows yeah, either, totally. but I can try. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. Totally. Awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, so now we're, we're going to go back to Exodus four. Okay, because now you're already you're you're in like Exodus twelve or 11, 11 or twelve mm-hmm. now. So you like this is you're, you you got this part sorted right of Exodus yes. four. Oh, it's sorted already. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> eighteen to thirty one. So this kind of interesting, strange interaction between Moses and Yahweh and Moses' wife. So the Lord's about to kill Moses, but Zipporah, you know, prevents it by circumcising his son and placing the foreskin on their feet on his feet. Um, and there's obviously there's lots of context there's probably Mm -hmm. lots of things going on here that we don't understand so Mm -hmm. can you give us a bit of that literary context and then help us understand like 
why why does God want to kill Moses? Yes. And what's going on with the foreskin? Yes. <laughs> this is such a fascinating text. So verses 24 through 26 are the, the the crux of the weirdness of this passage, but I'm so glad you framed it as verses 18 through 31, because indeed, I'm convinced that 18 to 31 are a literary unit. And mm. that if we if we read that context, it actually illuminates what's going on with 24 to 26. So we can't answer the question about what's happening with Zipporah and why foreskin if we're not reading that literary context. And I just presented a paper on this at the Hebrew Bible Conference at Multnomah University a couple of weeks mm. ago. And um, those those talks are going to be published eventually. So this will be out there eventually and, and it will be in my commentary. But I went through and started noticing all the literary links that unite these verses together. And they're just all kinds of repeated words. It's six or seven micro scenes that mostly just last a verse or two. Mm -hmm. And they're all stacked up. Like if you were filming this, you would need to keep changing scene because mm -hmm. they're happening in different places. And yet the same repeated words keep happening like father-in-law and serve and go and firstborn and Egypt and wife and sons and donkey and staff. And uh, there's so many words that are connecting and linking the units. So when I get done with all my connections, I see this is a tight web and we have to read them together. Hmm. and. As you noted, uh, the what immediately precedes verse twenty four, where Moses, where the Lord's about to kill Moses, is God announcing through Moses to Pharaoh. He's anticipating what he'll say when he gets to Egypt. This is what Yahweh says: Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. And this is hugely important to under, for understanding mm. what's going on with Zipporah because God has just identified Israel as his firstborn, which explains the logic behind the death of the Egyptian firstborn. Pharaoh's refusal to release, and not just release, but send away with his blessing, the Hebrews, mm -hmm. is what justifies God's uh, killing of the, the firstborn of Egypt. Now, to understand how this relates to Moses, we have to think back to the first two chapters where the previous Pharaoh is killing the sons of the Hebrews because he's threatened by them. And at the beginning of chapter two, Moses is born, but he's not named yet. This uh, this anonymous child and mm -hmm. anonymous uh adults who rescue him and big sister who is also anonymous for a while um they these women there's there's a whole constellation of women who conspire a, together to defy pharaoh's edict to kill baby boys and to save him instead and it's fascinating because he, moses is born a hebrew but he gets adopted by the daughter of pharaoh and we don't know very much mm. about her we don't know whether she's married whether she has other children, whether her husband, if she is married, is in line to be Pharaoh next, or whether she's just one of a gajillion women who are part of Pharaoh's household. But we at least have the question of who is Moses? Is Moses now a Hebrew or is he an Egyptian? Mm -hmm. And if he grew up in the household of Pharaoh, then the question could at least be asked when God threatens to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son, is he talking about Moses? Mm. Oh. Is Moses the firstborn son of Pharaoh? Huh. Uh, or is, is there a possibility that he is at risk because he grew up in an Egyptian household? Mm. And, and unless it feels like I'm just making that question up, all of chapters two and three seem to be wrestling with Moses' identity and where he really belongs. So he goes out to his own people in chapter two, verse 11. We, we don't know whether he realizes they're his own people or whether mm -hmm. the narrator's just telling us this. Um, but he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and he kills the Egyptian, which identifies him with the Hebrews. But then the next day when he goes mm -hmm. back out to the Hebrews, he, he says, why are you hitting each other? And the man says, who made you ruler and judge over us? Um, so he's, and then he has to run for his life because what he did became known. Mm -hmm. So he's rejected by the Hebrews and rejected by the Egyptians. 
and he flees and goes to Midian. And he fails to introduce himself when he rescues the women at the well. You maybe are aware that uh, meeting when a patriarch meets a woman at a well, it mm. always ends in marriage. Mm-hmm. This is a type mm-hmm. scene throughout mm-hmm. the book of Genesis where mm-hmm. a patriarch shows up at a well, meets a young woman. By the end of the scene, he's married. And it happens here too, but there's a missing element in what normally uh, unfolds in this type scene. And that is the part where he introduces himself and says, who he is and where he came from. And he doesn't introduce himself. So when the women go to tell their father about him, they say, an Egyptian rescued us. Mm-hmm. They call him an Egyptian. Mm-hmm. And then after they're married, uh, Moses and Zipporah are married. He gives birth. She gives birth to their son. And Moses names him Gershom, which means foreigner there, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And it's not clear what he means. Mm. He's a foreigner in Midian. Or did he become a foreigner in Egypt? Right. He thought he belonged mm-hmm. to the household of Pharaoh, but then he was alienated. Or he thought he was a Hebrew, but then he was alienated. Like he's got this hybrid identity where he's constantly on the outside looking in and marginalized. And so when when God meets Moses at the burning bush in chapter three, he tells Moses to take off his sandals. And then he introduces himself. I am the God of your father. Which is an interesting way to introduce mm-hmm. himself. Mm-hmm. Normally, when God says this, he says, I'm the God of your fathers, plural. Yeah. But here it's singular. I am the God of your father. And if I'm Moses, I want to say, time out. Could we clear this up right now? <laughs> yeah. Because I would like to know who my father really yeah. is. Are we talking about Amram here? Are we talking about some dude in uh, in the palace, some Egyptian father? Or are we talking about Jethro, who is now my father-in-law? Like, who's my real dad? Where do I belong? He has this this chronic sense of not belonging. And so God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in that one statement, God is resolving for Moses the ambiguity of his own identity. Yeah, like where who Mm. he belongs to. Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's at the same time identifying Yahweh. So Yahweh identifies himself and he clarifies Moses' identity in one sentence. Hmm. Yeah. Which I tell my students all the time is how it works when we we cannot ever find out who we truly are outside Mm. of knowing who Yahweh is. And we're never, and, and as we come to know Yahweh, we come to know ourselves. These mm-hmm. The two are interrelated. Mm-hmm. And so that is all essential background for us coming into chapter four, when, when Yahweh's announced to Moses, Israel is my firstborn and Pharaoh's firstborn is going to die. Moses apparently has not, has not fully signed on to the identity that was revealed to him at the burning bush because Mm. he has not circumcised his son. Mm. And circumcision is the sign of the covenant, the Mm -hmm. only rule God gave to Abraham that Mm -hmm. identifies him as a covenant member. So he's heard that Yahweh is his God, that that he belongs in this line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but he hasn't actually taken the step to fully fully embrace that identity Mm. and he cannot afford to go back to Egypt without that being settled. Right. It's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. He can't, first of all, he can't lead the nation in compliance with Yahweh's demands if he's not in compliance himself, Mm. but he also can't afford to go back as a potential Egyptian because that could be deadly. So I think what's happening here is that Yahweh is stopping him en route to to settle once and for all his family's membership in the covenant. Hmm. And I don't know how Zipporah knows what to do. She is from a priestly family. And the Midianites were also descended from Abraham. Abraham had another wife, Keturah, after Sarah died. And Keturah is the mother of what became the Midianites. And so it's possible that circumcision got passed down through that branch of the family. And so she knows how to do it. But then then that raises the question of why didn't they already do it before now? Right, right. Um, if we do the math, he is 80 years old when he goes back to Egypt. Mm. So I'm guessing his sons are not infants at this point. Mm-hmm. So it's a little interesting. Um, 
so many questions we could ask about this little short scene, but clearly Zipporah takes action. She knows, knows just what to do. She cuts off her son's foreskin. And then it says, and touched his feet with it. And in the NIV, it says touched Moses feet with it. So they're making the decision for us, but the text is ambiguous. She could be touching Yahweh's feet, her son's feet, Moses feet, the other son's feet, potentially, like mm. any any male in the story could be the one whose feet are is being touched. And so my uh my theory about this, and I can't be certain this is speculative because it's such an ambiguous statement, but I kind of think that Moses himself is already circumcised because Egyptians mm. circumcised their sons at puberty. Uh. So I don't know if he was already circumcised when the daughter of Pharaoh found him. The Hebrews are supposed to be doing it at eight days old. Mm -hmm. But if there's an edict from Pharaoh that all baby boys need to be thrown into the Nile, then I would I would think if I'm a mom, I'm not going to be performing surgery that will make my son cry when the soldiers are out looking for babies. So I think it's at least possible that he went into the palace uncircumcised and that he was had Egyptian circumcis circumcision when he hit puberty. Uh, and so he's circumcised, but he's not circumcised as a sign of the covenant. It'd be like saying, you know, when when you become a Christian and someone says, OK, now you need to be baptized. And you say, well, I've been swimming before. Right. Oh, yeah. No, that doesn't count as baptism. <laughs> Going underwater doesn't count as baptism. It has to be this ritual <clears throat> moment. There's this declaration that happens over you. And so I wonder if Zipporah's circumcision of their son and then touching Moses with the foreskin is a way of ritually recircumcising him, hmm. like saying, oh. now you're included, it, like now it's a sign of the covenant for yeah. you instead of just a hygienic procedure that happens at puberty. Yeah. So that's that's a theory. I don't know for sure. Yeah. Um, there's also the tricky thing about the word feet, because sometimes the word feet is euphemistic for male body parts. And so oh. it might not be his actual feet. She might actually be touching his private parts with mm. her with the son's foreskin, in which case that it kind of makes more sense of the mm -hmm. symbol if she's yeah. recircumcising him. So oh, all man. of that to say. Uh, and there's more that could be said, but all of that to say that I think it's essential for Moses' identity to be settled before he goes back to Egypt. He yeah. can't lead the people down a road he hasn't been down himself. Right. And Zipporah knows what to do. And so she becomes like a literary bookend to all of the women in chapter two who save his life. Moses uh -huh. begins and ends by being saved by women. <laughs> yeah. And they do what Yahweh does. They they anticipate the deliverance of Yahweh by acting in ways that Yahweh acts. And so mm. it it's a way of kind of framing and setting aside the Moses saga. Now we're ready for the next saga, which is going to be the rescue of the Israelites. We have the rescue mm -hmm. of Moses and then the rescue of the Israelites. And the the first is bookended by by women saving. And the second is bookended that this whole passage in chapter four, verses 18 through 31 has all kinds of literary links with chapter 18 as well. When mm -hmm. Jethro and Zipporah and the sons go to meet Moses at Sinai, all kinds of parallels there too. So I think that's the other bookend. So we, mm. it, this, so this passage faces both directions. It closes off one story and opens another that will mm. then be bracketed when they get to Sinai. Mm. So interesting. Oh it, it's interesting too how you framed. I've never uh, thought about Moses wrestling with his identity mm. in Yahweh, and then also how that kind of almost parallels, in some ways, Israel's wrestling as well, and how they're they're both uh, have to wrestle yes. through their identity and in, in whether they're going to follow Yahweh or or not. Yeah, and I, you know, this is an insight that I owe to the global church because mm. I began reading, I've been trying to read more broadly, and this is one feature of my course for Regent that I'm especially excited about, is students will be reading a very broad range of, of authors from around mm. the world, uh, all different cultural contexts. And I read a piece by an African scholar who was talking about hybrid identities and multiculturalism uh, yeah. and was seeing that in Moses' story. And it mm. brought things out of the story that are right mm. there in the text, but I just hadn't noticed them myself. Mm. Yeah. So this is one 
of the takeaways of reading with the global church instead of just staying in our little bubble and reading. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation. But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them. Share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. Can we talk about another, uh, maybe more challenging sure. uh, text um, in Exodus a little later? Um, in Exodus nine twelve, this is a common uh, wrestling through, um, but I, I wonder if you could share some of your thoughts. But it's the it's Exodus nine twelve where God hardens Pharaoh's heart, or it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and there's multiple yeah. accounts where Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it says God hardened his heart. So, I wonder if you could unpack this a little bit. What's what's going on here? Is is God sure. hardening Pharaoh's heart? What is there specific word meetings that we're not yes. seeing here? Yes, I'm happy to do that. Um, this was one of those puzzles that I came to myself, and you know, students are always asking this: How could a good God? harden Pharaoh's heart and then punish him for having a hard heart. That feels wrong. (laughs) It doesn't feel like how can, how can a good God act like that? And so this is a very, probably the most common problem that people have as they read kind of an ethical problem. Mm -hmm. And so I dove in and tried to see what is going on. And, And these instances of hardening happen all through the signs and wonders. So starting in chapter well, it's even mentioned in chapter four um, that the text we were just looking at, but from five through uh, 11, there are lots of instances of hardening. What I discovered is that they're not all the same word in Hebrew. There are hmm. three different words used for the so-called hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and they don't all mean the same thing. So there's two different dynamics to pay attention to. One is who is doing the hardening or the acting on the heart. And as you already pointed out, Nick, there's uh, the first, the first five tradition, the five of the traditional plagues. Um, Pharaoh is the one doing the, the whatever's mm-hmm. being done to his own heart, and then the second set of five in the traditional ten plagues, Yahweh is the one doing it. So there's a there's a gradual transition in who's doing the acting. But even then, if we pay attention to which word is being used, we find that there are some things that Pharaoh usually does, and there's other things that God usually does, and it's not the same. Hmm. So um, one of the words, one of the Hebrew words is kashe, which means to make firm. And that's probably where we get the word harden in English. It's not a bad way of saying it, except except that the idiom hard-hearted in English implies a kind of cruelty. Mm-hmm. Like if someone's yeah. hard-hearted, they lack yeah. empathy, they're yeah. cruel. Uh-huh. And that's not really what cachet means. Cachet means um, it's firm or resolute, hmm. which is what you have to be to finish a master's degree at Regent College <laughs> while holding a full-time job or raising <laughs> children or whatever, right? To finish your degree, you have to be resolute. You have to be mm. persevering. And that's what it means to have a cachet, a, a cachet heart is, mm. is that it's resolute. And that is sometimes what God is doing to Ferris heart is making him resolute. So it doesn't have a negative connotation attached yeah. to it. Yeah. It's more of like persevering. Um, another word that's often used is chazak, 
which is to make his heart strong. And that's very similar. I I think it overlaps with this idea of being resolute. And usually it's God making Pharaoh's heart hazak. He's strengthening him. He's egging him on. He's saying, Mm. be more of who you are. Hmm. It's when Pharaoh's Mm. acting on his own heart, he is actually making it heavy Mm, in Hebrew. Kaved. And Kaved, to have a, the the problem with translating this, and it's probably why our English Bibles ended up with Harden, is that a heavy heart in English means we're sad or discouraged. Mm -hmm. If you're heavy hearted, things aren't going well. But in Hebrew and in and in Egyptian context, a heavy heart has a different meaning. So in mm-hmm. Hebrew, it would mean a non-functioning heart, like an organ that's not working properly. Mm-hmm. And so Pharaoh makes it so his organ doesn't, so, so his heart doesn't work properly. Um, and we also maybe it's worth noting that for Hebrew thinking, the heart is not just where you feel things, but it's it's your thinker mm-hmm. and your decider. It's 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 the seat of your will. Mm-hmm. In addition to your emotions. And so Pharaoh is is making himself uh, non-functioning. He's he's mm. not deciding properly. He's not thinking mm. properly. He's not feeling properly. But in an Egyptian context, there's another layer of meaning that I find so fascinating. If you're if you've heard of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, this is a series of texts that that ancient Egyptians would have commissioned so that their maybe their body, their sarcophagus would be wrapped in pages of the Book of the Dead, or they'd have scrolls buried with them, and it would have various spells and various scenes from what was thought to be the thing that happens to you after you die. Mm-hmm. So you go through a series of stages after death as you pass to the afterlife. And one of the stages is where your heart is removed and it's put on a scale. And it's weighed against a feather, and the feather represents ma'at, which is the Egyptian concept of balance, order, harmony, justice. It's it's kind of the equivalent to the Hebrew concept of shalom. Mm. All is right with the world. Everything mm-hmm. is as it should be. And so the feather represents that, and the heart is being weighed on the other side is from the feather. And if the heart is heavier than the feather, it means that the the person was guilty of injustice in their lifetime. They did not maintain ma'at. Therefore, they can't proceed peacefully to the afterlife. Mm. So when the text tells us that Pharaoh made his heart heavy, in an Egyptian context, Mm. that's indicating Pharaoh is choosing injustice. He is becoming guilty Mm. by his own standard, by Egyptian Mm. standards. Like, Leave God out of it. By Egyptian standards, Pharaoh is guilty. And it's interesting to note that in with only one exception, Pharaoh is always the one who makes his heart heavy. Mm-hmm. It's not Yahweh doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one verse, I think it's in chapter 10, where, where it says Yahweh made his heart heavy. But that could be, we could understand that as kind of a global, he uh, he judged Pharaoh's heart to be guilty. Uh-huh. Um So this, I think, is helpful because what I see, what emerges from all this data to me is that God is not circumventing Pharaoh's free will. He's not forcing Pharaoh to do anything that he hasn't freely decided to do. Pharaoh is the one who's opposing God and God eggs him on in a sense in order to be able to fully demonstrate his power and who he is to the Egyptians. So all through these narratives, it says, so then you will know that I am Yahweh. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. So all of the signs and wonders are intended to show who Yahweh is. Mm. And it is a feature of Pharaoh's stubbornness that displays more of who Yahweh is, but it's never against his will. Mm -hmm. So God's egging him on, but it's making Pharaoh be more Pharaoh, not making him do something that he hasn't done. done freely of his own accord and so pharaoh's um pharaoh's becoming more guilty as each of the signs unfolds and it's very clear always in the context that the choices he's making are deliberate he refuses Mm. to listen to yahweh he changes his mind i was just working this morning on recording torah tuesday videos and i was doing the sign um 
one was it? In chapter eight, the swarm, he sends a swarm and most English translation have has most English translations have flies, but it doesn't actually say flies in Hebrew. It just says, I'm sending the swarm, whatever it, <laughs> it's a swarm of, we're not sure. Um, and, and Moses negotiates with Pharaoh about getting permission to leave. And finally, at the end, Pharaoh says, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to Yahweh your God in the wilderness, but just don't go very far. But the moment the, the swarm leaves, Pharaoh changes his mind. Uh, it says he hardened his heart, he made it heavy, and would not let the people go. So he doesn't let them go do what he said he was going to let them go do. So not only is he not allowing them to do what Yahweh wants, but he's not even doing what he said he would do. Right. Um, which I think is just the the cumulative evidence is that he is he is an abominable person <laughs> who has uh, violated all standards of justice, all Egyptian standards of justice, um, mm-hmm. so that Yahweh is well within his rights to judge him. Mm-hmm. God, this is so helpful. Like, so this kind of reframing that you're doing, you know, in terms of like, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was not just the sons, but maybe it was the daughters, or maybe there's not 10 plagues, maybe it's signs and wonders and there's 12. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's not this, but it's that. Like, should that be troubling? So if someone is mm-hmm. saying, thinking, I always thought there were 10 and mm-hmm. now I can't, mm-hmm. like, is it always just going to change? You know, and so <laughs> I don't, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. But so can you talk to us about that in terms of um, yeah. is is our discovery and our exploration and our digging into scripture and our some things kind of adjusting, tweaking, changing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. should that be unsettling for us, troubling mm-hmm. for us, like well, anxiety producing? Well, I hope that it unsettles us enough to yeah. make us curious yeah. about other texts that mm-hmm. seem really familiar so that we're willing to revisit texts and we're willing to ask hard questions. I hope that it that it stirs us up a little bit, but I hope it's not anxiety producing. Right. Uh, what I'm doing as I revisit Exodus is I'm trying to peel back the layers of assumptions and traditions that have accrued through history yeah. that might not actually be be a close reading of the text, but I'm never peeling back the text. Yeah. I, 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 there's mm-hmm. always this core. I my the stopping point is the Hebrew text itself. And if I can't find evidence in the Hebrew text of something, then I'm going to let go of yeah. the theory. Yeah. Um, so I'm peeling back layers, but it's not an endless process. Right. Uh, yeah. There there is a core in the middle. And Sometimes we learn a lot from history and sometimes history is a distorting lens Uh because we get into certain ruts and we just assume if we've been told all through childhood that there were 10 plagues in Egypt, Mm -hmm. then we're just going to count 10. We're Mm -hmm. we're not going to question that. It's only when we ask the question, where does it say there's 10? Because I was Mm -hmm. just wondering this thing with the snake or the snakes, it feels like a sign. In fact, Mm. it's even called a wonder. Pharaoh Pharaoh demands a wonder. He says, show me a wonder so that I'll know who Yahweh is. And so he's even asking for it. And it seems like this is what kicks off the whole Mm. sequence. So why Mm. don't we count this one? That was my question. Um, And that set me on this path of exploration. And now I'm just going to swim upstream. Mm -hmm. Carmen, it it seems like um, uh, this is a unique passage maybe i i could be wrong but uh i guess my question is what does this say about god about yahweh in with the understanding that this is yahweh god almost like egging pharaoh or mm. uh, allowing pharaoh to be pharaoh in some sense but what does mm. this say about who god is and mm. then my other question is are there other passages in scripture where god interacts with with someone in a way that um would egg them on or um yeah i, I guess what I, my question is it seems like a unique passage where god intervenes or does this in a way that mm. that um yeah interacts with an individual okay so i have two examples that came to mind one is romans 1 where we're told, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then it says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, uh, this is like, you made your bed, now lay in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, the other example that comes to mind is, I think in the book of 
Amos. Amos has this wonderful gift of sarcasm. And he says to the people, go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Keep bringing your tithes and your offerings every three days for this is what you love to do. Hmm. Um, and, and it's if Amos is pointing to the hypocrisy of the people that they keep bringing sacrifices and yet they're oppressing people on the side. They're mm. they're guilty of of gross injustices and yet they're still going through all the motions. And so he he eggs them on. He's like, yeah, keep doing this. What do you, this is this is what you love to do, but he makes clear that it isn't pleasing to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that feels a little similar mm-hmm. to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure we could think of other examples, especially from the prophets, because the, that's where we get the real spicy. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, also from Exodus with the quail. They're complaining they don't have enough to eat. So God brings so much quail that's coming out of their noses. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like a fine. This, yeah. This yeah. is what you want. I'll give you what you want. Yeah. yeah. And it's that thing. So it's like, but you actually know what you need. Like, it's sort of like, mm-hmm. I'll give you what you want, but actually, you know what, what mm-hmm. is right. You know what is good. Yeah. And yeah. yet, oh, you know, so there is that sort of like, I might be egging you on, but it's actually because I know that you actually know what is good and right. And yeah. Something yeah, as well. And if you, yeah. if you, uh, if you would just trust me to provide yeah. for your needs mm-hmm. instead of complaining, mm-hmm. then I would ha- be able to show you graciously. I would able be able to provide graciously. But since you're so bent on complaining, I'll give you something to complain about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this happens all through the signs and wonders. There are all kinds of echoes from chapter one where um, Pharaoh's nervous about the proliferation of Israelites. Mm. And they become odious to him. It's like they stink. And in chapter five, the people complain to Moses, like, you've made us stink to Pharaoh. And then God sends frogs. And when the frogs are all dead, it stinks. Mm. And they're worried about the Israelites swarming over the land. And so God sends a swarm. Um, there, there are so many mm. uh, parallels between chapter one and the signs and wonders where God says, oh, yeah. I'll show you what it looks like to be really annoyed or disgusted yeah. or to have something stink. Oh, so it's yeah. beautiful. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Uh, totally. Yeah. totally. That's really helpful. One other passage um, the, or, or thing in Exodus that has always been interesting to me or, or that I, th- I think that I've had kind of a misunderstanding of what exactly it means is, is the, the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. And growing up, I was always told, you know, not to say uh, the words, oh my God, like that's, that's taking mm-hmm. the Lord's name in vain. And yeah. I, so I was very uh, aware not to do that, but to say, you know, I would say, oh my gosh, you know, in order to correct <laughs> that, right? Uh, could you unpack a little bit what, what it means to take the Lord's name in vain? Sure. Yeah, this is this was the topic of my dissertation, Mm -hmm. which I did at Wheaton College. And uh, it's the it's what got me into Exodus to begin with. So I was in the Ten Commandments. And I think that's why I was asked to write on Exodus. And now I'm in the earlier chapters learning all kinds of stuff. But for five years, I was immersed in the Decalogue or Ten Commandments. So I have become convinced that this is one of those places where we have layers and layers of tradition that are actually distorting the meaning of the text. Mm -hmm. And we have been told what you've been told, Nick, that Mm -hmm. taking the Lord's name in vain means to say God's name flippantly or as a swear word, which let me assure you, no ancient Near Easterner was dumb enough to do. (laughs) They understood that the names of deities had power and they didn't. They, they didn't want any lightning strikes. And so mm-hmm. they weren't going to just use God's name flippantly. So what did it mean in that context? Well, as I dug into this, I became convinced that it's actually talking about something much broader than our speech and the way we say God's name. So in Hebrew, it, it to give you a kind of a wooden translation, it says, you shall not carry or bear the name of Yahweh, your God in vain. And so the question I asked was, what would it mean to carry or bear a name? Do we have any evidence from the ancient world? Do we have any literary evidence that name bearing is something people did? And I think a lot of translators have come to this passage and have concluded, well, it can't, it can't be literal. Like people don't bear names, they say them. So this must be about speech. And so then Mm. they're off with the races and thinking about how speech is related. 
But uh, in the near context, we have instructions for building the tabernacle and then instructions for constructing or or, uh, sewing the garments of the high priest. Mm. And the high priest is going to have gemstones, 12 gemstones on his uh, pouch that's on his chest. And each one is engraved with one of the names of the 12 tribes. And on his shoulders, he has two large gemstones, each with six names, the names of six tribes. And then on his forehead, he has a a golden plate engraved with the name of Yahweh. Mm -hmm. And what what we're told in chapter 28 is that Aaron is bearing the names of the sons of Israel before Yahweh, that he literally is carrying them on his body. And so I noticed that it was the same phrase. He's Nasa Shem. He's Nasa Shemot. Uh, Nasa is the verb that means to carry or to bear, and Shemot is the plural for names. And it's that's that's the same language as the this command. Um, you're not to Nasa the Shem of Yahweh. And so I thought, well, that's funny that we're not reading these two things together. They're both in Exodus. They're not that far apart. They're both at Sinai, and we've just had in chapter 19 the statement through Moses that. Israel is a kingdom of priests. Mm. And so I don't think it's a stretch for us to consider that we should look at the high priest to find out what's true of the entire nation of Israel. He is a priest who represents them before God, but they as a nation represent God to the nations. Mm. And so the, the idea that I landed on that I became convinced of is that Israel bears God's name. That is at Sinai, he he puts his name on them to claim them as his own. And now they have the responsibility of representing God to the nations. They're his ambassadors. Mm-hmm. and But they bear this invisible brand or invisible mm-hmm. tattoo of God's name. And so, of course, they shouldn't flippantly use God's name. They shouldn't speak it with disrespect. They shouldn't make oaths with Uh, you know, authorizing their oaths by the name of God and then breaking their oaths. Sure, it includes all of that, but it's much broader. Like if we made a Venn diagram of what this command encompasses, traditional views would be the little circle in the middle. And the way I'm reading it is much broader. Everything they do Mm. is a feature of their role as God's representatives. And therefore, therefore, they need to be thinking about in every area of life, how they represent God and not to, not to, claim to belong to Yahweh, but live as if they don't. Yeah. They, yeah. they look just like all of their pagan neighbors. Um, and and this, I think, explains in part why this command is so high on the list mm. of 10. I don't know if that's ever bothered you before that, you know, we've got 10 commands and they seem to go from really big stuff yeah. to smaller stuff, mm-hmm. like don't worship other gods, <laughs> make idols, and then don't take the Lord's name in vain feels kind of funny to be that specific if it's about our speech. And then Mm -hmm. we go back to uh, the Sabbath and honoring our parents and not murdering and all of this. And then we narrow down to not bearing false witness against your neighbor later, which if the first, if the name command is really about oath-taking, which a lot of people take it to be about oath-taking, then how is it different than false witness? There's there's mm-hmm. a lot of overlap between the two. So I think this reading solves that overlap. It solves the question of why is it so high in the list? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it better explains Israel's identity and vocation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once you see this, you cannot unsee it. Can't unsee You'll it. see it yeah. all through the Bible. Right. Yeah. It's in almost every book. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. First mm-hmm. Chronicles, I think it is, um, 14 and and or 714. I guess it would be Second Chronicles 714, because First Chronicles 7 is a genealogy. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that, Nick. Weren't you yeah, gonna say that? I, I know exactly what that. that was. I was like, come on, how are you getting that one wrong? <laughs> Oh, anyway, I love it, man. Um, you'll see it everywhere. These are the people who've been called by God's name. They're, his name has been called over them. Uh, they've been claimed to belong to him. So mm. so that's oh. how I read it. And oh. it's opened up a whole world of understanding for me about our mission to represent Christ to the nations yeah. and mm-hmm. how how we as Christians fit in with this vocation mm. that, that emerges at Sinai. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Oh, Carmen, we could honestly, we could keep talking for mm-hmm. like hours, days. Obviously I could. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, and if we keep, I keep throwing in random questions from the sidelines all the time as well. Um, It's been so good as always. 
a joy, as your middle name suggests, <laughs> uh, to speak with you. And so we're so looking forward to having you here at Regent yes. in the summer, in June. Yes. And um, so thanks so much for your time today. We're yeah. so grateful and we're looking forward to seeing you soon. I hope I hope lots of people hear this and want to sign up for the class and they should know that this particular class is in person, but it's also online. Mm-hmm. If if somebody can't travel to Regent, they can they can actually join. We're going to do kind of high flex, some in person and some online together oh, so cool. yeah you're welcome no matter where you are thank awesome. you Carmen mm-hmm. so grateful thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast follow us on Facebook Instagram and Twitter to discover more about Regent College its upcoming events conferences courses and more content like this visit rgnt.net that is rgnt.net. <laughs> <laughs>